right, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2, we are dealing with the church at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum. I call it Satan's place. We've taken a look at the church at Ephesus, which received words of commendation as well as words of condemnation, things that they needed to work on and change and repent of because Jesus says, I'm coming quickly as far as his judgment is concerned, in time judgment. So we call that the church that was loyal but lacking or the church where the honeymoon is over. Then we talked about the church at Smyrna, little poor little rich church, the suffering saints. We talked about them in the book of Revelation chapter 2. They had no words of condemnation, only words of commendation from the Lord Jesus. and uh, But they were the suffering saints. They were really struggling with persecution and suffering. And the words that Jesus tells the church at Smyrna is that it's going to get worse. Some of you are going to be put into prison, but be faithful unto death and you shall receive the victory crown. That's what he tells them in the book of Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And now we come to the church at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum where the temple of Zeus, where a temple of Zeus was uh, erected there, and where the smoke day and night went up from the sacrifices and the offerings that were made to the god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. Here is the uh, remains of that great temple that once stood there. Uh, here is an, some other uh archaeology findings. Uh, there was a group from Germany that has excavated that area in Pergamum for a long, long period of time, and they have been able to replicate, bring back some of the artifacts from that location, and uh, put that thing together in a museum that you can go and visit and see. This is one of the pictures of ancient Pergamum. Uh, you'll notice there on the right or the left-hand side up into the right corner, that is the University of Asia Minor, as it were. That is the great library. 200,000 scroll library that existed there in the city of Pergamum. Probably second only to the library of Alexandria. You'll notice there is the big amphitheater set about 10,000 people. And as I mentioned Wednesday night, a person, a speaker could be down at the bottom speaking to the people in a normal voice or a normal tone as he spoke or as she spoke and still be heard at the top level of that amphitheater. Amazing. This is a depiction of what the city of Pergamum looked like back during the time of John's day. And you'll notice there in the foreground, you'll notice there is the temple to Zeus where visitors upon uh, thousands upon thousands of visitors would come from the world over to honor the god Zeus makes sacrifices unto him. Here is a depiction of what the scrolling, the, the sprawling city of Pergamum looked like. You'll notice that on the hill, uh, as it were a seat of a throne overlooking the metropolis of Pergamum was. Pergamum was about the size, a little bit smaller than the city of Amarillo. It was about 160,000 in population. Here is another picture depicting that amphitheater. And here is a model replica of the temple to Zeus. 
Here's another picture of the city of Pergamum. This is set, part of it set up on that hill I just showed you just a moment ago. And here is a, a picture, I believe this is of another temple that uh, has been obviously destroyed. This is the temple of Trajan that was in the city of Pergamum. Here is a small room possibly connected to the uh, library area. Just another view. And this is a model depicting what the mountaintop uh, part of the city of Pergamum possibly looked at during the time of John's day. So, this is the city of Pergamon. This is the place where the church has been established possibly for 30, 40, 50 years. And John has, has been told and charged to write to the church at Pergamon. And this is what he says to the church, to the Christians there at Pergamon. Now notice he's writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. And this is what he says to the church, to the Christians that reside in the city of Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have... There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. I find it interesting when you take a look at the city of Pergamum, that it does stand on a hill. It stands on a hill like a great throne overlooking its subjects. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. He calls it, yeah, it's a throne, all right, but it's a throne where who sets? Satan sets. It's a throne where Satan sets. Sir William Ramsey called the city of Pergamum a royal city. It was the seat of the state religion. What was the state religion? Worship. Of Caesar. They had several temples there to honor the gods. They had the temple to Zeus. They had the temple to Asclepius, which was the god of healing, which people from all walks of life, from far and near, would come in groves to come to that temple to offer sacrifices, to hope and pray that through that God they might receive healing of their physical ailments. Ascepolis was the name of the God. It was the place where the original Augustine temple was established. One of the first to honor the Caesars. 
Uh, it was a place where the great library, as I mentioned, was erected. Had 200,000 scrolls there as part that made up the library. As a matter of fact, the king of Pergamum tried to get the library, head librarian, the one who was in charge of the great library of Alexandria, to come and work for him. Upon hearing of it, King Ptolemy II of Egypt uh, put in prison his head librarian and uh, would not let it happen. But also, the city of Pergamum used to get their uh, papyrus there. And papyrus was something that was used for years and years and years to write uh, history, documents on, and to put on scrolls on this papyri that was taken from Egypt, sent to Pergamum and other places where they had these libraries and people who would write upon them. Well, that was completely stopped when the king of Pergamum tried to hire the head librarian uh, there at Pergamum. So what they had to do, they had to come up with their own means by which they were going to continue to enlarge their library. So what they did is they started using something called vellum. Vellum was something that was used off of animal skins upon which they would write and build their libraries. As a matter of fact, it became known as a better product than papyrus was. Uh, it held up better, was stronger, and longer lasting. And so uh, it's amazing what you can do when you kind of put in the bind, and they were able to come up with a new way, a new form of material called vellum by which they could write their history and documents on and keep them in their library there. Now you'll notice that he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now who is the one that has the sharp two-edged sword in the city of Pergamum? Who has the right of capital punishment if you live in the city of per Pergamum? Who has the right of the sword as they called it? Romans do. Romans have the authority, the power of life and death through the power of the sword. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn your Bibles just for a moment to the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Romans 13, verse 4. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome. Uh, verse 3, for rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. What is a minister of God? The governing authorities. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger of who brings wrath upon one, who practices evil. In other words, the form of capital punishment that was used by the Romans back then was something that was sanctioned by God for those who were a, 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 a horrible, wicked uh, person in the world. That there were certain laws or certain uh, transgressions that could be performed, certain evil acts that could be done, that could bring about the sword in your life, capital punishment. Why was Jesus killed? Well, they saw him as a threat. He's challenging the traditions of the Jew. 
And matter of fact, Pilate, did Pilate find any guilt in Jesus? Here is an ungodly, wicked, pagan man who finds no guilt in Jesus, and here are those that are standing as the epitome of what light in the world is, accusing Jesus falsely. Now, laws did set up. Uh, Rome had its laws that insurrectionists were counted as criminals deserving of death. Many of them by the sword. Some of them by crucifixion. But Romans knew how to take care of insurrectionists. Those who wouldn't honor the king. Those who were a threat to Rome. They kind of got them out of the way. Pilate saw no fault in Jesus. He saw this as a religious issue among the Jewish people. But because of pressure, he would wash his hands and said, say, you have, you, you, you will have him crucified just as you want. Pilate was under pressure. He gave, he gave heed to peer pressure is what he did. He did not want a word getting back to Rome, to Caesar and Rome, that they're still having problems in the city of Jerusalem and in Judea. He had the responsibility of governor to make sure everything was peaceful there and that Caesar wasn't going to have any more problems with the Jews in Judea. So he gave way to pressure. But there's no doubt that Pilate makes a statement that it's true. Do you not know I have the power to set you free? And I also have the power of death. What was Jesus' answer? You would not have this power if it were not given to you by God. By my Father, you would not have that power. So is capital punishment a viable option for civilizations, for nations even today? Yes, the power of the sword. They have the right for capital punishment. They still do. That's the authorities that we have to obey to a degree and to a point, as long as those authorities don't disagree with God. Now, when you take a look, it says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, when you go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 16, who was the one that has the sharp two-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth? Who is that one? It's Jesus. It's the resurrected Lord that John sees in the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. So the one who has this sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. A lot of thrones. you got a throne for Zeus. you got a throne for Escapolis. you got a throne for other gods in the city, other temples. you got a throne for, for Caesar. But he says, I want to let you know the thrones I'm talking about, those thrones are nothing more than the seat of the throne of Satan. And notice what he says. You hold fast. In spite of the fact that it's the seat of Satan, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, who is Antipas? I don't have a clue. But I do know this about Antipas. And that is, he abided by Revelation 2, verse 10. He was faithful even to death. He held fast to the name. 
Jesus. He maintained his faith in spite of the fact they were going to kill him. And you got to admire somebody like that. As a matter of fact, you would consider when they talked about him being a faithful witness, the word witness is where we get our word for martyr, martus, from the Greek language. He was a martyr. He was a martyr. He was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. He maintained his name. He held fast to his name, did not deny the faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now that's a commendable thing, isn't it? That's pretty commendable. That in the face of absolute death, a person refuses to deny Jesus, even though it's going to cost them the supreme sacrifice. I hope if that would ever happen to me, that I would be able to do the same in the face of death, to be able to hold to my faith. But he says in verse 14, I have this against you. So we've seen the words of commendation. Now we're going to take a look at the words of condemnation. Notice what he says. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, when he talks about he, they have some that hold to the teaching of Balaam and they have some that hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans, who's the they that have some who hold to these teachings. Who are they that hold to some of these teachings? The church members. Yeah, the members of the body of Christ, Christians, are holding, advocating, and practicing the teaching of Balaam, who are holding, practicing, and teaching the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what did we find out about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? from Ephesus. Who were the Nicolaitans? And what did they teach? Does anybody remember? Okay, they compromised themselves. The Nicolaitans, I believe, is the Greek side. The Balaamites are those that were teaching the aspect of, uh, of Balaam. The philosophy, the theology of Balaam are from the Jewish side. So you've got the Greek and the Jewish side that these Christians are having to uh, resist in their own communities. We saw what was going on in the church at Smyrna. Why is the church at Smyrna? Why are the saints suffering there? Well, they're getting hit from two sides. They're getting hit from a religious side known as the Jews that John says, or John is told, is really a synagogue of Satan. And they're also getting hit by what? The empire, the Romans. And both of them are putting pressure on the Christians there. 
The Jews are accusing them of insurrection against the Roman Empire, not practicing, worshiping their gods, or, or possibly not paying their taxes, or not joining the trade guilds. They're accusing them of being a problem in the nation, trying to overthrow the government. And the Romans are knocking on their door, dragging them out of their homes, confiscating their possessions, putting them in jail, and killing them. When you take a look at the church at Pergamum, they're facing within the body doctrinal issues that have the power to overthrow the church. The sin of the Nicolaitans was that of compromise. The body, all matter is evil. The only thing that is good is the spirit. So if the body is the only part that's evil, then your body can practice whatever sin and engage whatever sin it wants to. It has no impact on the spirit. It was the sin of compromise. Now that sounds pretty convenient, doesn't it? That you could do all the sin that you want to do, and yet your spirit's not affected. And if your spirit's not affected, then you're justified before God. That was their thinking. Now, they say that Nicholas came from somebody that's called Nicholas in the book of Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He's the one that established what ultimately would be called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. There were various camps of Gnosticism. But Nicholas evidently promoted the theology that all matter was evil, the spirit was only part that was good. Now, what about the Balaam? The Balaam? What was the sin of Balaam? What was Balaam trying to do with Balak? What does it say here in the context? But I have, the, I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And what was he trying to do? Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You can read this story in the book of Numbers chapter 25. So what was, what was the theology of Balaam? that he sought to get Balak to teach the sons of Israel to do, the children of Israel to do. What was he trying to get them to do? The very same thing that the Nicolaitans sought to get Christians to do, and that was to do what? Compromise your values, your moral system. Compromise it. It's all right. No problem. That's the way mainstream in our culture is thinking. There's no problem with that. No problem with that. You know, I have found it interesting. The things that our culture has now begun to accept more and more and more. Have you noticed that? Things have changed. Now, if you haven't been around for a long time, you probably haven't seen that things have changed that much. But for us that have been around since God made dirt, things have changed. You can't tell me that moral standards haven't shifted. And they've not shifted in a good, positive direction. Now, some people like to walk just as close as they can to the darkness without crossing over. But my problem is, is that I believe that people are walking in darkness thinking that they're just sitting close to the edge. That's the problem. Many of our young people today have no problem 
Don't see anything wrong with people living together before they are in covenant relationship through marriage. That is something that's common. Don't see anything wrong with it. May as well put this thing to the test. If we can't get along living together and, and doing things together, not, then maybe it's not going to work out and we don't have to go through the process of getting married. Now, folks, that's accepted practice in our culture. Yes or no? Things that are put on TV today, they wouldn't have been tolerated 30, 40 years ago. None. But when you have people who are immorally evil, setting the standards for what is put on TV, when it's put on TV, and they're the ones that are setting the rated system for movies, television, you have put the prisoners in charge of the prison. All right? We've put kids in charge of the candy shop, and they're going haywire. Now, we could talk about a lot of things that have shifted as far as the moral values and standards of a nation that was once known as a Judeo-Christian nation. I'm just wondering if we could really claim to be Judeo-Christian today. Do we still hold to those values and standards, not passed down by our forefathers, folks, but passed down by the Father, God? Do we still hold to those values? What Christians in the church at Pergamum were doing were holding to these compromising positions. Now, what is the problem? Were there faithful Christians in Pergamum? Yeah. And what is Jesus telling the faithful Christians to do about those who are holding to these heretic-type theologies that are changing the value standards? What is he telling them to do? You've got to deal with it. You can't tolerate it in the body. Why? Because it affects everybody else in the body. Doesn't it? Isn't that what happens? What was it that Paul told the church at Corinth to do about a young man who was shacked up with his father's wife? What did, he, what did they tell him to do in 1 Corinthians? You withdraw from him. You can't let him, as a Christian, live with another man's wife, his father's wife, and, and pat him on the back and say, Hey, welcome to the fellowship here. We enjoy having you and think that everything's okay. No, he expected the church there at Corinth to do something about it. He had been warned. He needed to be talked to. And since that wasn't getting anything done, what was the last result that they told the church there at Corinth to do? Withdraw fellowship from him. Have nothing to do with him. Now that's a last resort. It's not a matter of taking action of hate or hurt, it is a matter of action of love. Because once they experience the breaking of that fellowship, still wanting to have that relationship with the church family and with God, hopefully they would fill the empty void that's left there and come back. And guess what happens in the book of 2 Corinthians? The guy repents. He comes back home. He gives up living with his father's wife. And he comes back home. He repents. 
And guess what Paul has to do with the church? Hey, you need to accept him back. <laughs> you know, it was either on or off with the church at Corinth. You know, it was either extreme this way or extreme this way. But they were at church. You know, I'm glad I didn't have to preach at Corinth. <laughs> I really was. That had been a tough church to preach for. It really was. But that was what was demanded of the church at Corinth. That is what Jesus is demanding for the church at Pergamum. You need to get that in order. You need to deal doctrinally with these immoral issues that are going to affect the rest of the congregation if it's not dealt with. So that's what he tells them to do as far as the sin of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, those who are holding to those teachings. Now notice what he says in verse 15. Repent, therefore, or else. Boy, those just don't sound like the words of a loving, gentle, benevolent Lord, does it? Repent or else. Now, what, the, what does the word repent mean? I'm sorry. Is that what the word repent means? Change. That's what it means. Repent. Change. You change directions. You change your heart, your will, your attitude towards that sin. What sin? The sin of compromising yourself. And Jesus says, if you don't do that as a congregation, he says, Jesus says, repent therefore or else I am coming to you, what? Quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, let me ask you. They were faithful Christians who didn't who weren't obeying or who weren't going along with the sin or with the sin of the Nicolaitans or the sin of the Balaamites. Then what about the faithful Christians? What was their problem? They were tolerating it. That was their problem. You ever heard Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These some Christians had, had. Yeah, some Christians had become so liberal they had accepted this teaching of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. Sounded good to them, and they were practicing it. They were living that way. Christians in the body of Christ were tolerating that going on, and he tells them, "You need to straighten that out." You need to take care of that. You need to hold these people accountable for the way they're living and the way they're acting. Hold them up to the standard of God's Word. He says, if you'll, if you'll do that, when I come, it won't be a problem. But if I come and I find it go, still going on, there's going to be a problem if you don't repent of that. Repent, therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. What weapons do we have as Christians? What weapons do we have? What does Paul say? What, what, is, what is the weapons that you and I have? Word of God. Sword of the Spirit. We don't take up physical swords. We don't take up physical military power or might. No. What is the power? The gospel. What is the power? The Word of God. 
Jesus says, it's my word that's the two-edged sword. And what does that two-edged sword do according to the book of Hebrews chapter 4? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I still got one bell left. Hang on. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And because of that, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Word of God, that's our weapon of warfare. That's our weapon of warfare. The sharp two-edged sword. And it is the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to convict. It is the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to place judgment and righteousness. According to John chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, whatever he has written to Ephesus, whatever he has written to Smyrna, and whatever he's written to Pergamum, all get read by all the churches that he is sending this to. So, does the church at Smyrna get to hear the message that is sent to Pergamum? Yeah. Do you think that might wake them up a little bit? Do you think the church at Ephesus gets a little bit harder message when they hear about what's going on in in Pergamum? Yeah. Because all the churches are getting the same message, basically. The same warnings. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Now when you think, when you hear that word manna, what comes to your mind? The wilderness. Where God supplied the children of Israel with a constant supply, as the psalm calls it, corn from heaven. Manna from heaven. That's where they made their bread. God fed them every day for months and years on end from the manna from heaven, corn from heaven. And Jesus uses that image to remind them that if they will overcome, He will give them the ability to eat from or continue to eat from the hidden manna. And He also will give them what? white stone. Now, what was significant of the white stone? A white stone, when you think of the word white, what comes to your mind? Huh? Purity? What else? White stone. White. Light? Okay. How about victory? Also, the white stone was given to people who were acquitted of a charge, a white stone. If they had been brought before a magistrate or a judge or whatever the case may be, and their case was brought before, was was uh, uh, prosecuted and defended in, in front of this magistrate, and they were found to be uh, uh, not guilty, they would be given a white stone that they could present to whatever whoever their accusers might have been as a symbol that they had been acquitted. 
Now that white stone is something that Jesus symbolically says you're going to get, which they would have understood. You're going to be acquitted of any charges brought to you if you will repent and overcome what was going on in that church family. If you'll overcome that, if you'll set things in order that have become uh, have become dysfunctional in that church family as far as sin is concerned, I'm going to let you continue to eat on the hidden manna. By the way, who is the manna? Jesus said in the book of John chapter 6, what did he say of himself? I am the bread of life. Were these Christians feeding on the bread of life before they got the letter? Yes. He's just telling them if you'll overcome the sin that's in the, char that's in the church family there and overcome sin in your life, he says you will be able to continue to eat of the hidden manna and I will give you a stone of acquittal and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now what does that mean? What is on that stone with a name that no one knows except he who receives it? Well, you come.